All right, we are live here today with Emily Rassam, who is a certified financial planner, certified digital asset advisor, chartered retirement plan specialist, accredited investment fiduciary, analyst, national social security advisor, and last but not least, is a 2023 Investopedia Top 100 advisor. Emily works with Archer Investments Management out of Austin, Texas, lives in Charlotte, North Carolina, and provides intentional heart-centered financial planning for high-achieving professionals and as clients from uh, companies like Apple, Dell, Google, IBM, Microsoft, and Netflix. And Emily, with that introduction, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Absolutely. So um, what does it mean to be heart-centered uh, advisor? Yeah, so... You know, there are all different types of advisors that are out there, and that's why it's so important to interview different ones. And I put that out there because really I focus on really the goals of the people that I work with and really what would help them maximize their happiness and usage of money over their lifetime. So a lot of times when I'm developing strategy for a client, it's not necessarily about the exact optimal numbers and tax plan and how to maximize their wealth over time. It's really trying to balance in, you know, how do we, you know, work with goals in the short term to kind of fulfill their heart's desire now and throughout their lifetime and really maximize their life's happiness and not just the math. Makes sense. So the the folks I was telling you off ca ca um, camera that uh, will possibly be listening to this will people pre-divorce, in a divorce, post-divorce. Mm -hmm. Obviously, most of the time it's a man and a woman. So one of your topics that you like to or you talk about is unique financial planning issues for female-led households. So if someone gets divorced, obviously they're going to be a, their head of household. Mm -hmm. Can you kind of uh, just go over what some of those unique uh, topics are? Yeah, absolutely. And I want to mention financial planning is so important for people who might have possible different future outcomes based on a decision to go through a divorce or get remarried or whatever it might be. And so mapping out all of these different possible outcomes in a long term, decades long plan is, is so important. Um, I do put out there that I work with female led households a lot of the time, which could be um, people who are divorced, widows, widowers. Um, you know, households where the female might take primary responsibility of household finances. So she might not be the breadwinner necessarily, um, but somebody who just might be much more involved in, in the finances. So some of the common issues that we see are, um, you know, women value security and also value family. And not to say that men don't value those things, um, but a lot of times the women that we work with want to make sure that the plan that's being developed no, you know, accounts for the fact that they have a certain need for feeling safe and secure and that we're thinking through all of these possible future outcomes and health events in the future and making sure they're not running out of money. And, you know, longevity is a big concern with a lot of female clients that I work with. You know, if you walk around a nursing home, you'll find that it's predominantly women that outlive their partners um, and find themselves, you know, having longer term kind of healthcare events that occur. And a lot of my male clients tend to more likely have the mindset of, I could die tomorrow, I could have a big heart attack, something like that could happen, and I want to make sure I enjoy today. So we like to work with women and, and help them feel secure in that longer term plan. Um, and also, you know, when we think of 
you know, um, hundreds and year, of years ago, thousands of years ago, you know, men were hunting and gathering and, and they were really the risk takers where women were kind of keeping the village safe and secure. And so, you know, we understand that mindset um, and help women kind of uh, work with those dynamics. So in being safe and secure, um, let's a scenario kind of post-divorce, kind of sticking to the main topic we're talking here with unique issues, you know, half of the assets essentially go away in a divorce, right? So you're, it's kind of a setback. I mean, not kind of, it is a setback from, for financial growth uh, for both parties, uh, mm -hmm. man and wife, but the, the woman in this scenario, um, maybe she wasn't the breadwinner, as you mentioned, or if, even if she is like, what are some, at that point, like what kind of advice would you give? I know it can be just general advice, but when you got to really step on the gas and, you know, get to that financial security endpoint. Yeah. So, and that's why, you know, financial plan is so important because then you can say, okay, if that occurs where half the assets go away, I need to have a really good understanding of cash flow. So current inflows and outflows. Um, at the end of the day, it's really not about how much you have or even how much you earn. It's about how much you spend. And so having mm -hmm. an understanding good and healthy um, spending habits and understanding how your expenses play a role um, in the whole picture is really important. Um, so that's something that um, for anybody who is going through any kind of major life event, um, re-examining the expenses and having a really good understanding of those outflows um, is, is super important, as well as being able to um, really kind of project out and understand you know, what those next decades look like, as I mentioned before, with financial planning, um, you know, it's sometimes easy for people to understand what next month is going to look like. But we want to make sure that all of the decisions that you are making, as far as how to title your assets, your tax planning strategy, your state planning strategy, we want to zoom out and look at um, really how that all plays out in the long run. So I would say that anybody who is going through um, you know, a major event, it's really re-examine those expenses and um, have a good map and plan um, that accounts for multiple decades. So I, I think I did read either on your website or LinkedIn that you are a self-described budget nerd. Yes. Um, so when you said that, it, it reminded me. So it's it's it seems it's interesting that you're not putting, they're all important income and what you have, but you're saying it's powerful to look at your spending how what tools how how would one go about doing that just get the last bank statement see where money might be leaking mm -hmm. yeah and that's one thing that i find is that a lot of people think a budget is just looking in the rear view, rear view mirror of what did i just spend um i like to call it a cash flow plan and a plan being more futuristic kind of thought process mm -hmm to say, what will I be spending? So what are these upcoming and future expenses going to be and forecasting those out? Um, so a lot of the tools that are out there, they're great um, through a bank app or your credit card statement are gonna just look in the past. Um, I actually like when I'm having somebody first sit down to start to put a budget together or start to understand their expenses, I like to have them first just list out what are their typical fixed expenses? So your typical expenses that are the same every single month and list all of those out. And 
determine, is there anything that needs to be adjusted or changed? So do I need to renegotiate? I just last week decreased my cell phone bill by about $50 a month. I'm pretty happy about that. Um, so, you know, going through and, and identifying, are there any subscriptions that are on here that maybe have crept in that I don't use anymore? I don't need, um, can I make any changes to, you know, things like a gym membership cost or, uh, my cell phone bill, as I just mentioned, um, you know, those are, are some important things to maybe either revisit, renegotiate or adjust. And then also taking a look at what variable expenses typically are, um, you know, food, clothing, entertainment, gasoline, those different types of things that are variable, getting good understanding of that and then projecting it forward and looking ahead. So in my household, we sit down at the end of every month and look ahead into the next month and say, what is August going to look like? Or what is September going to look like from an inflow and outflow perspective? Because if I'm going to be short at the end of the month, I'd certainly like to know that a month ahead. Um, or if I'm going to have some kind of a surplus, I can then do some planning around what would I do with that extra money that's coming in? And I think that's really where the power is in budgeting. So I think pen and paper at first makes the most sense to really kind of get in there and feel the numbers um, and make that a little bit more real. And it allows you to um, really kind of see and play with, with those different numbers. So um, when you identify that you're going to have a shortfall, you've got some time to maybe make adjustments to that month and, and fix that potential issue. And if you have a surplus, you can then direct where is that going to go? Um, so what goal am I going to allocate that towards? And basically, you just do that um, several months ahead. My budget spreadsheet is five years ahead, so that might be a little bit extreme for people, um, but at least kind of having that mentality of utilizing a budget tool to forecast and look forward versus only looking backwards, which a lot of the apps and tools tend to do. Do you have a budgeting tool you use or are you just an Excel person? I'm an Excel person personally. Uh, my, my Excel spreadsheet goes back 13 years and is forecasted five years forward. I yeah. think I'm just kind of stuck in that model. Um, but um, a lot of the apps do allow you to to forecast and plug those numbers in. So a lot of our clients use uh, the mint.com app, um, YNAB, so you need a budget, um, and other tools like that. Um, Mint and YNAB, I know, are bigger tools, so they have a little bit more security around them. I'm a little bit cautious of some of the smaller apps or newer tools and kind of inputting all of your financial data into those. Of course. I want to, so you have a lot of initials behind your name. And honestly, I had to Google some of them because I didn't know what they were. And then I read up on what they are. For instance, the, the CDAA, the asset advisor, and then chartered retirement plan specialist. Can you tell me the difference between, and, and what's fascinating is I think these um, additional certifications, if you will, that you have give you more of a broader idea of someone's overall, you know, I'm searching for words here, you can say it better, but over their overall life financial scenario from both the investment side of things and advisory on the CFP front, and then on the retirement side, can you talk about the differences in those two? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So certified financial planner is really kind of the cornerstone. Um, and, and that's really where we did a deep dive on the estate planning and tax planning insurances and kind of how all those pieces fit together with the investments. Um, and so the other designations I got were really when I determined, you know, I'd like to learn more. I want to kind of dive into another topic. 
Um, I'm in the middle right now of, of studying more on estate planning. So I'll have more alphabet soup after my name at some point later this year. Um, but National Social Security Advisor was, was a designation I picked up because I wanted to be able to advise people on um, Social Security and Medicare. So those are things that come up for every single person who's reaching retirement age. Um, the Chartered Retirement Plans Specialist allows me um, to understand all of the different types of retirement plans, um, really the tax status and um, benefits and pros and cons of using each type of plan, um, and also kind of the inner workings administratively of how they all work. Um, accredited Investment Fiduciary Analyst really is about the investments inside of retirement programs. Um, you know, it's important to understand what our fiduciary responsibilities are um, to our clients and how to build an investment plan um, that really serves them best. And so there are, are some global precepts um, for fiduciary responsibilities and oversight over these retirement plans. Um, the most recent one that I got was the Certified Digital Asset Advisor, frankly, because we work with a lot of tech professionals who uh, started asking us about cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology. And I said, I just, I don't know enough about this. I need to um, do a deeper dive in this area. And so um, was one of the first advisors to go through this program and just understand the technology and the usage of it inside of a portfolio um, and the different vehicles to potentially invest in. So that's something that we've been able to um, kind of help our clients with along the way as well. Perfect. Um, okay. So I want to help, let's help some folks maximize their retirement. I have some, some, some questions for you. Okay. So um I'm fascinated by this Roth conversion strategy, maximizing your lifetime wealth. I was telling you earlier that my CPA, when I bring it up, he says, well, then you don't need me if you're going to do Roths and not <laughs> not use your solo 401k and and and, and invest uh, pre-tax. Mm -hmm. Convince me. Yeah. So, Tim, I fight with my own CPA about this every <laughs> single year. So I hear you. So this is kind of my my take on this. So a CPA is trying to help you make 2022 or 2023 look the, as the best possible. And so, of course, utilizing all pre-tax buckets will help you. Not converting Roth assets um, will help as well. But as a certified financial planner and somebody who's zooming out and looking at the big picture, I'm trying to look at what are your lifetime tax obligations. So when I run a financial plan for you, I can run an estimate or projection of what do we expect you to pay in total taxes over your lifetime? And it's a scary number. We don't like to look at that. But when I start to look at some different strategies, such as saving in a Roth vehicle or doing Roth conversions along the way, my goal is to reduce your lifetime taxes and, um, so I want to kind of minimize those lifetime taxes, but I also want to maximize your lifetime net worth. And so I can do a comparison of your ending net worth in these couple of different scenarios. And so we map out all of these different tax years along the way during your earnings years and during your retirement. And we look for, do you have any lower spots where your, your tax rate might be a little bit lower or your income is a little bit lower? And potentially, we want to convert some of those pre-tax assets to Roth assets and um, recognize that as income in that year and pay tax on that as income in that lower tax year in order to decrease your total lifetime taxes. And so we do a lot of this for our clients when the market is lower also, because if your traditional IRA or 401k has reduced in value, and then we do a conversion of part of that, you're only paying tax on 
the dollar amount that you're converting in that year. So a market pullback is a great time to think about this mm -hmm. or a lower income year is a great time to potentially think about this of paying taxes today and having some pain today, pain now to avoid some of that pain later. Um, and so once the money is in that Roth account, it then grows tax free and is distributed tax free um, later on. And so in a lot of cases, if I'm going to convert, you know, $100,000, I'd rather pay tax on $100,000 today that converts over than paying um, tax on, let's say it becomes $200,000 or $300,000 in the future. I'd rather pay tax on that $100,000 today than paying tax on $300,000 in the future if it grows in value. Interesting. That was the missing in my, that maybe it was explained, but not in that way. But that, I think that was the missing ingredient for this to make sense to me. Cause I always, always argue, my argument would be, and I'm sure you hear this is that I I'm at my highest tax bracket now in my prime earning years. And when I retire, my income might be realized income might be half based on the needs, you know, or what projections there. I didn't realize that obviously those amounts are much higher. I, I didn't account for that. I said a hundred thousand now and your in your scenario would be on the hundred thousand every time. I didn't put that part together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's a, it's a higher dollar amount that you're paying taxes on, even if the tax rates lower. And the other thing is, you know, a lot of our clients are spending pretty similar amounts or living on similar income in retirement than they were while working. So I think that sometimes we have this expectation that all of a sudden we're going to retire and our expenses are going to go down, our spending is going to go down. But you know, if you're not working 40 hours a week or more, you've got to fill that time. And a lot of time that involves um, you know, different activities or travel or purchases. Um, a lot of our clients renovate their homes early in retirement mm -hmm. or buy that dream car. So we're actually finding in, in real life case studies in 16 years of being a planner, a lot of my clients retire into similar income and spending scenarios than they were while working. So aside from the um, Roth conversions, then are you advising your clients that are currently investing to put their use directly into a Roth? Yeah. And so I always have to say it depends, right? So yeah, sure. not, not every single situation makes sense for that um, because there are extremes. Um, I had a meeting with a client earlier today um, that makes about $1.6 million a year and in retirement will probably make $200,000 a year. So there are cases where there's an extreme change in income. Mm. Um, you know, that we might see. And so for that person, I would absolutely not recommend um, saving in a Roth vehicle right now. We need to increase every pre-tax opportunity out there. But for most people who have, um, you know, most of my clients are in a more modest income and expect that similar income in retirement and some time for that money to grow inside of a Roth environment, it does make sense for a lot of folks. So People who are in their 20s, 30s, 40s, it's almost a no-brainer for me to save in a Roth environment. Um, when you get a little bit closer to retirement and you're a little bit higher in income, then we fall more into that gray area of let's map it out. Mm -hmm. um, but there are a lot of cases where it makes sense when you've got some time for that money to grow, um, even if your income is high right now. If a person was able to have enough discretionary income to completely... Um, invest or um, max out uh, their 401k in a pre-tax and that and add equal amount to uh, um, invest additionally in 
you know, outside of a Roth or a 401k, would, okay. would that change your suggestion? Yeah. So a lot of 401k plans do allow Roth contributions as well. So we do look at that. Um, but yeah, so we just, we plug it in and we, we model that out. Um, so um, a some clients also have access to additional savings inside of their retirement program um, and in a Roth environment. So if they allow an after-tax contribution above and beyond those um, annual limits, they might be able to um, do kind of a super maxed out Roth environment. Um, so for a lot of people that that might make sense. Um, but you're right. Um, some clients say, I want to kind of max out my 401k and put the 22,500 in pre-tax and then save Roth above and beyond that. Um, so sometimes there's personal preference to it. And sometimes um, we're just looking at the, the tax numbers for it. Would that Roth in that scenario be outside of the em employment? Um, so it's inside of your employment. And I was searching for the word. I have baby brain. I'm eight weeks out from having a baby. So oh, no. I, I was searching for it. <laughs> Congratulations. In my oh, thank you. It's mega backdoor Roth um, is what it's called. So some corporate retirement plans allow you to do this mega backdoor Roth contribution. So after you've saved the annual contribution limit, that 22500 then you have your employer contribution that comes in. Then they allow you to save above and beyond as an after-tax contribution oh. and then convert that to Roth. So some retirement plans do allow you to save additionally inside the corporate retirement plan above and beyond um, the IRS limit that most people are familiar with. And that's mega as an M-E-G-A? M-E-G-A, yeah, mega backdoor Roth inside of your corporate plan. So that's something for a lot of our clients that have the cash flow for it. We're searching through their plan documents to see if that's allowable. Um, and so then we're trying to determine, well, that amount has to be Roth. Um, mm. And then starting uh, in the coming year, any catch-up contributions for folks that are able to um, do that catch-up, that'll be a Roth contribution. So then we're just making the decision on that $22,500, your ordinary contribution, is does it better serve you to plug that in as a pre-tax or Roth um, uh, contribution? And so in our financial planning tools, we just plug it in one way, we plug it in the other way, and then we look at, again, total lifetime taxes paid and ending net worth, um, what allows you to maximize those two variables and, you know, all of the different inputs that we plug in are going to vary person to person. Do you, you, I know you work with a lot of tech folks and um, whatnot. Do you, uh, do you guys work with any uh, uh, like business owners? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, we work with a lot of tech professionals because we work with a lot of, we started working with a lot of clients who have equity compensation plans, they get stock awards. And so you start to work with more clients like that and you find more clients that way. Um, but our, our client base is really a wide range of professions, and um, we do work with plenty of business owners and um, other professionals as well. And the reason I, I wanted to ask that first, because I have a follow-up question. Um, I know most people can't make, so I have a small business, obviously, and mm -hmm. it's, just, it's just me. Mm -hmm. So the paying myself a salary for the sole purpose of being able to do a 401k, so solo 401k and invest. Mm -hmm. If the if the option was there to do, say, like a pass-through income on the full earnings of the year versus taking payroll, which I know my CPA won't allow, but mm -hmm. is there an argument for, I mean, does it make sense to, if you have an option to pay taxes for the sole purpose, you know, generating income, paying taxes for the sole purpose of being able to divert money into a 401k? 
Yeah. Um, and like the cost to do that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, you know, 401ks have some administrative costs and you've got a, a, to file a 5,500 tax filing. So there are some costs to it, but typically it does um, weigh out positively to save in the 401k. I would say that most of our clients that are small business owners, um, when you weigh out the costs administratively running the plan and of the taxes, payroll taxes to pay yourself to save, being able to accumulate that bucket over a long period of time typically does make sense. Can you tell me the difference between like a solo 401k and, an, and, a, and a true retirement or pension plan? Yeah, so there aren't a lot of differences um, as far as contribution limits, other than when you're in a solo 401k, you're able to make a contribution as an employee and an employer. Um, so there are some limitations based on kind of your total revenue and income as far as what that employer contribution can be. Um, but you have all the control over how much you can put in for yourself up to what the IRS is going to allow you to do. And there's a formula for that um, on the IRS website or your CPA can help you run that. Yeah. Um, so there's some advantages to being able to save kind of on both sides of it. Um, in a corporate retirement plan, um, you know, you're limited more so on the investment options. So you're really going to be given that menu from your employer and you don't have any control over that employee, the employer contribution that goes in. So, um, if somebody is kind of weighing out the ability to save in a solo 401k or, um, you know, be a 1099 individual and, and save in a solo 401k versus being a W-2 individual and, um, you know, accepting those types of benefits, that is something to potentially weigh out. So the next topic I had for you, and I, was, I told you before we jumped on camera, I was uh, deep, deep diving into the website and content on HSAs, mm -hmm. um, health saving accounts. Is that right? Health savings accounts. Um, and you had made a mention, where's my question about it being one of the biggest savings tools available. Can you, can you break that down for me? Yeah. So not from a dollar amount perspective, but just from the fact that it's triple tax free, I think people don't um, truly understand and value that benefit. So when you save in an HSA, you're putting money in pre-tax, you've got before tax money going into it. It grows because you can invest that money without paying tax on the earnings. And then if it's distributed for qualified medical expenses, it's going to come out tax-free as well. So you're never taxed on those dollars versus a retirement program. You're taxed either on the money going in, in a Roth environment, or in a pre-tax savings environment, you're going to pay tax eventually when that money comes out. So that money, you're either paying the tax today or you're deferring it. And in think, HSA, yeah. you're never paying tax. So that's what makes them powerful. And so if I'm thinking about, I've got these future medical expenses, I can either save in my 401k and IRA just to have accumulated net worth to cover medical expenses, or I can utilize an HSA plan and accumulate wealth in that plan and have that be triple tax free. That's a much better environment for paying those future medical expenses. So we call those, um, basically healthcare IRAs for our clients, just to make sure that they're seeing that as a retirement vehicle. Oh. And, you know, that's one thing that we often catch is that our clients will save in the HSA and then take that money right back out in the current year and cover their co-pays and um, other medical expenses. And we tell our clients, you know, save and accumulate inside that HSA, let that grow, uh, max it out every year and let it grow um, into the future. And as you can, just cash flow those medical expenses today and utilize that HSA as a, as a long-term savings vehicle. 
So one, <clears throat> excuse me, one thing that I found fascinating, and correct me if I misunderstood this, is we, we do exactly what, just by, this is what we've been doing for several years, is we have a high deductible uh-huh. health um, plan uh-huh. that allows us to have the HSA. We, we, we max out the HSA every year. We never touch it, never have touched it. Great. What I didn't know, and this is the part I want you to clarify for me, is that I, I thought we had to use, if we were, we were just not going to ever touch the HSA and just mm-hmm. cash flow the medical, like you said. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't, I thought if you were going to use it, you had to use it the year of that medical cost. But I think I read on the website that said you can do that years down the road. Yeah. So this is one thing where, you know, we, I've got a file sitting in my file cabinet right now of, of medical expenses that I paid out of pocket. Um, indefinitely at this point, you're allowed to take money out of the HSA later to reimburse yourself for prior medical expenses. So, um, you know, I may in the future just need it for current year medical expenses and retirement. Or if there's a situation, um, let's say I, I have a terminal diagnosis or, something where I want to spend it down quickly, I can now take that file and say, hey, I paid for, you know, Invisalign uh, last year and, and um, you know, whatever else, orthotics for my shoes and medical co-pays and other bills and, and dental appointments. I paid for all these things along the way. Now I can go and just reimburse myself for those expenses at a later date. So you keep the shoebox of all those receipts along the way. And you could at any point just trigger, um, you know, a big pull out of the HSA to cover those. So that's the part that was the missing link. Cause I've just, we've just been paying the bills and toss, tossing the bill, you know, shredding yeah. the bill. So we're gonna have to dig all those up, I think, so we can reimburse ourselves. Mm-hmm. Is that something that's not well known or was I the only one to not know that? I agree. I don't think it's well known because when I see uh, different articles about HSAs, it's rarely mentioned. So I kind of wonder too about anything, you know, is this going to go away? Is there going to be a limitation on time at some point? So I don't know where it's going, but I'm Mm. saving my receipts until I hear otherwise. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, there, I have a question here uh, that you asked to ask uh, why your financial plan is more important than your investment return. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that? Yeah. So um, when you take a look at um, all of these different studies that are done by Fidelity and Vanguard and all these very large retirement plan providers that have millions of participants in their plans, you know, what they've determined is the most important aspect of your ability to retire on time and have the balance that you need is your ability to save along the way. So 80% of your balance is there because you saved the appropriate amounts along the way. 20% of it's there because you chose the right investments. Mm. So, you know, whether this one mutual fund or that one mutual fund or this ETF or that ETF is better than the other, um, certainly you can maximize your investment strategy and that's important, but it's, it's most important to get that savings number correct. So when I started in this industry, my first job 16 years ago was doing 401k enrollment meetings. And I drove around town and met with people who were just enrolling in their 401k. I thought my job was going to be to educate them on the investment options. And I quickly learned, no, it's educating them on how do I get you saving more? Because that's more important. Um, Having you choose the right mutual fund is one thing, but having you save more and have a strategy to save more over time is more important. And then I learned that you can't save unless you budget well. So I needed to provide more education on, you know, how do you get your budget in a place where you can save more so that you can invest so that you can have the kind of balance that you need long term. 
So getting that savings number right is, is the most important thing. And building that into your plan and projecting that out um, is more important than picking the right fund within your lineup. That makes sense. It's it's funny because it, it, this is a whole trickle down type upside down pyramid maybe or maybe a regular size pyramid, but where you start with the budgeting and, mm -hmm. the, and it, it flows downward from there, not not investment up. But it, am I saying that right? I'm trying to you know mm -hmm. like start with budgeting and then work work down. Yeah, and it doesn't matter what age client I'm working with or what their net worth is or what their income is. We always start with the spending plan. So getting a really good understanding of your spending and your belief systems that guide your spending and saving decisions, um, I think that's so important. And the more I work in this industry and the more I work with clients and the more I understand um, you know, what that household budget looks like, um, the more I realize that, that that is more important. And so client calling and asking, should I buy more of this one stock or should I buy crypto or whatever it is, it absolutely matters. But we really need to kind of start with that fundamental aspect of understanding that cash flow. I know there's going to be a bit of it depends on this question, but if someone is maximizing their retirement, doing all the right things, and they still have extra money and they don't know what to do with it. And their their question is, do I do additional investments outside of a 401k or do I pay off my house? Mm -hmm. What would you, and I know there's some depends in there, but can you give me some scenarios where you'd recommend one versus the other? Yeah. And so one thing that we encourage our clients to do is to have a thorough goal setting process. And so knowing, you know, what do I want to accomplish this year and next year? Um, vacations and home improvements and car purchases and, you know, other things that I want to do so that when you do have excess money, you're going to look at a list of short-term, intermediate, and long-term goals and really prioritize those. And so um, my husband and I sit down at the end of each month to budget, but we're also looking at how do those buckets look that are for each of those goals? So are we able to fund these goals that are coming up in the next few years and, and intermediate term and longer term? So that's one thing I would, I would first kind of tell you to step back and do. Um, but very often when folks have additional money, so they've maxed out 401ks and HSAs and IRAs, and now they've got additional money that they want to use to accumulate wealth. So if their goal is, I want to maximize my net worth. I don't have short-term goals I'm going for right now. And I can either pay down my mortgage that's at three and a half percent, or I can save and accumulate wealth in an investment account, um, some of that comes down to your risk tolerance and, you know, your value system around debt. You know, are you really anxious to pay off debt? And that's just more of a, an emotional value to you. Um, or is it more emotionally pleasing to you to kind of grow and accumulate dollars? So there is sometimes kind of a difference from personality perspective, yeah. but the math of it usually works out to save and invest that money. So if we were right. purely looking at the math, if you've got a low interest rate on your home and you don't have other high interest rate debt, typically saving and accumulating wealth makes more sense. And if you really want to pay off that mortgage at a later date, you've got that money sitting there and available to do that or available to accomplish another goal, such as purchasing a second property or helping you retire earlier. Um, so you can always later take that money and throw it down on the mortgage later on if you want to. I did an amortization on our mortgage. If we paid it off in five years, 
which we could if we didn't do extra investments, mm -hmm. we would save $150,000 in interest mm -hmm. versus over the term of the loan. Would th that not be considered an investment per se? Yeah, but what you compare it against is if you were to invest that money instead. So if you did that same dollar amount of additional um, mortgage pay down and you put that into an investment account, then you would look at what kind of earnings might I have in that investment account um, compared to the interest that I would be saving. So that's the comparison point. So I didn't convince you. <laughs> just kidding. So yeah. what, what are the other uh, investment tools people can use out? So 401k, IRAs, um, HSA, all taken care of. Where is this money? Is this is now we're talking brokerage accounts? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So typically a standard brokerage investment account typically makes sense. You know, unless you have a specific other savings goal, such as college, you might utilize a more college um, friendly type of an account. Um, but typically you're going to be using an investment account that's considered a taxable brokerage account. Awesome. What didn't I ask you that uh, maybe our listeners or some uh, glaring question I forgot to ask you before we maybe end off here? Hmm. Gosh, um, I, I can't think of anything. I think that, you know, I think we hit the high touch. Question. Yeah, I think that if somebody walked away and understood that, you know, it's it's important to understand how you're spending money and, and to have a budget and to zoom out and look at a bigger plan, I think, uh, you know, we've, we've won here. So there's not really any one easy button or one specific investment that's going to change your life. It's really just having um, more of that mindset of goal setting and um, understanding how everything over a long period of time, all those variables impact your, your, your total plan. Awesome. Emily, thank you so much for coming on. I learned a ton clarified so many things I had misunderstandings on and I'm sure um, people watching this will have the, the same outcomes. Again, thank you so much and I'll stay in touch. Thanks for having me, Tim. Absolutely.